You know, every day, we're the subject of influence, whether we know it or not. There are individuals and entities that want our attention and want us to do something. They might want us to take action. They might want us to do something new or to think differently. And if they're able to influence us, they've unlocked a secret formula to persuasion. A formula that was first expressed by none other than Marcus Tullius Cicero over 2,000 years ago, who said, If you wish to persuade me, you must think my thoughts, feel my feelings, and speak my words. Leaders, whether they're in marketing, engineering, in the C-suite, they all carry influence, in some cases, in amounts greater than they might even realize. Well, what does it take to be influential? And once we have that influence, why is it a responsibility as well as a power? Have you ever admired a leader and wondered just what it is that makes her who she is? How he came to embrace the things that advanced him? Welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we look at the principles that define success. This is a show for leaders at all stages of their careers who aspire to understand what it truly means to be a leader. And who is a leader? Dolly Parton said, If your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you are a leader. Together, we'll explore key principles, not only in the sense of fundamentals, but also in the ethical sense, the habits, character traits, and virtues that form the backbone of leadership, principles that are just as relevant and essential in the 21st century as they were in the first century. This is Timeless Leadership. Hello and welcome once again to Timeless Leadership, where we explore principles and virtues that accompany successful and great leaders. Thank you for considering this hour worthy of your time, and it's my hope that we're going to provide you the quality of conversation that keeps you coming back. We do these shows live each week, sometimes on Fireside Chat, sometimes on Twitter Spaces, and then we package them up as a podcast for listening later. The bonus, of course, is if you're here live, you have the opportunity to ask questions throughout the show. So feel free to listen to and follow Timeless Leadership wherever you get your podcast, and subscribe to the Timeless and Timely newsletter in my bio. This week's topic, Influence. Jason Falls solves problems. Most of the time, they have to do with digital marketing for Cornet, a full-service advertising agency based in Lexington, Kentucky, where he leads digital strategy. His work has touched a number of major brands and has been recognized with several national and many regional awards, including a 2019 Shorty Award for his influence marketing work. A public relations professional by trade and writer by craft, Falls has co-written two other books, No Bull Social Media, The All Business No Hype Guide to Social Media Marketing, and The Rebel's Guide to Email Marketing, Grow Your List, Break the Rules, and Win. Falls is also an innovator in the social analytics space. Having published the first research report on online conversations, all the way back in 2012. Noted as an influential in the social technology and marketing space by Entrepreneur, Advertising Age, and others, he's a frequent media analyst and guest, and he's appeared on or in outlets like the BBC World Service, ESPN's Outside the Lines, The Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Bloomberg Business Week, Forbes, and NPR. Jason hosts two podcasts, Digging Deeper, Make Creativity Your Business Advantage, which features interviews focused on marketing creativity, and Winfluence, the Influence Marketing Podcast, which is a companion to his latest book, Winfluence, Reframing Influencer Marketing to Ignite Your Brand.
Jason, welcome to Timeless Leadership. Wow, that's one hell of an intro, Scott. I don't think I've ever been presented that uh, dramatically before. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's only going to get more dramatic from here. Let's put it that way. <laughs> nice. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, look, I, I custom uh, design intros for all of my guests, and I felt that someone as influential as you and someone who has been writing about influence for some time uh, required something that was almost Spider-Man inspired. So there you go. I was going to say that was like Cecil B. DeMille stuff, man. That was good. That was good. I liked it. Well deserved. So, so why don't we uh, why don't we start at the beginning here? Who influenced you when you were growing up? Wow, that's a good uh, that's a good question. Um, I think you know pr- I, I would have to you know say first and foremost my mother. Um, you know, I'm a I consider myself a professional communicator in various uh, you know iterations of that term. And uh, when I was growing up, my mother was the editor of the local newspaper in my small town in eastern Kentucky. And then she later, uh, she and my stepdad started a local printing company. And so I was always around writing. I was always around journalism. I was always around the media. Uh, she also ran political campaigns for local political candidates. So I kind of, you know, sort of inherited that through her. And uh, and the interest in, in communications in the media as a field. So I think she's probably the my primary uh, influencer in, in regards to what I do. And certainly, you know, she raised me, too. So there's a lot of influence there. Um, but I think my my English teachers in high school, um, I've routinely referred back to them in my professional life. Uh, Jean Williamson was uh, the one of the four English teachers I had that I absolutely hated when I had her for class. Um, because she red inked everything I wrote and I knew I was a better writer than she gave me credit for. But I didn't realize until later in life that she was doing that to make me a better writer. And she did. And so Jean Williamson, um, Ann Keene, Medina Salee and Lane Tackett were my four English teachers in high school. And, and they sort of inadvertently pointed me on the path I'm on. That's excellent. And, and, you know, as we said in your, your intro there, you've, you've been a writer. And I saw someone, I think it was Perry Hedrick over on LinkedIn just this morning posted, you know, if you're looking at a PR agency, um, look for the one that has the best writing because yep. writing permeates everything. Can, can you talk a little bit about that, that influence that your English teachers had on you in the writing sphere and how that's actually fueled your career? Yeah. And interestingly enough, while I was in high school, you know, I, I wanted to get away from my mother's list of chores. And so I, I ran out and got a job, but I didn't want to work at the movie theater or the convenience store like everybody else. I marched myself into the local radio station and said I wanted to be a DJ. And uh, I learned how to write for broadcast in that context. But it was really writing is the core of, of all parts of communication, whether you're hosting a podcast, whether you're speaking uh, to a conference audience somewhere, whether you're, you know, sending an internal, you know, communication within your, uh, in your, in your business um, to, you know, other people on your team, the the ability to communicate ideas clearly, uh, hopefully concisely, um, and and do that effectively over time, I think really separates people who are ultimately successful in any avenue of business versus those who might have a little bit more friction to get where they want to go. Um, you know, the, the, the best communicators out there are typically the ones who navigate through their career path with a little bit more efficiency because they say what they want. They get what they want because they know how to communicate that clearly. There you go. There you go. And it, look, there's, there's all kinds of ways of uh, communicating, you know, not just in writing, obviously through uh, photos and, and videos and audio. And, you know, as you said, they're on radio. Um, and, and you need to, to learn to write for each of those audiences or each of those uh, types of media. Um, so let, let's talk a little bit about influence in general. You know, influencer marketing has been around for, well, for a while. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, I think it, it's conflated with celebrity endorsements now. And, you know, just earlier this week, I, I wrote in my newsletter about the difference between uh, between fame and greatness and, and what the difference is there. So why don't you help us understand how you define influence and what influencer marketing actually is? 
Sure. Um, so my definition of an influencer, or uh, I, I like to, instead of saying influencer, I like to say people with influence. Um, but my definition of a person with influence is anyone who can motivate an audience to take action. And that might be that they motivate you to uh, visit a website. They motivate you to you know try or buy a product. Uh, they, or they might motivate you to just think differently about something. They might educate you so that you have different context or perspective about the world around you. And if you look at the definition of influencer through that filter of anyone who can motivate an audience to take action, um, what you're doing there is you're taking the R off of the end of the word. And instead of talking about influencer marketing or influencers, you're talking about true influence which is the verb. That's the ultimate thing you're trying to do when you're trying to persuade people. You could argue that you could, that everything we do in the marketing communications world is influence marketing without the R, because again, you're trying to persuade an audience to take action. And so my definition of influencer marketing is to say we need to step back from that term, because I think what's happened in the last few years with the advent of Instagrammers and YouTubers and now TikTokers becoming the, the center of a lot of people's attentions when they think about social media and think about influence on social networks is we've become predisposed to think of influencers as the peace sign, duck lips, superficial, look at my food, look at me on the airplane, look at me in this fancy hotel. And there's an element of that superficiality out there with some people who are influential online. But there's an entire universe of people with actual influence who can persuade their audiences to take action uh, around social media networks, but then offline as well. I like to use the example that if you are the owner of, you know, the local school supply or parent teacher store in your community, your primary influencer should be the president of the local PTA. And it doesn't matter how many Instagram followers they have. <laughs> So it's really a matter of understanding that the people who you need to work through as a marketer to influence your audience to take action are the people who actually influence them, not just people who carry the banner of influencer. Yeah, well, that's, a, that's a great point. I mean, we, we default so often to thinking about online influencers as the only kinds of in, influencers out there, and they're really just a slice of the pie, aren't they? That's very true. And I mean, if you think about it, you know, we, we talk about influencer marketing and people think, oh, that's been our, I've actually heard people say, yeah, I'm, I started working in influencer marketing all the way back when it started in 2013. And I just laugh. Um, <laughs> because if you think about it, you know, political lobbyists are influence peddlers. That's what they do. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, and we've had those for, you know, well over a century, if not more than, you know, beyond that. Um, the celebrity endorsement thing, that is influence marketing. You're, you're leveraging someone else to try to persuade an audience uh, to try or buy your product. And so if you take, again, if you take out the R and you look, take out the filter of the Internet and social media channels, you've got influential people all over the place. And what I try to do with our client strategies at Cornette and when I'm advising people on how to think about building influence marketing or influencer marketing in their terminology campaigns is just ask the question, who influences my audience? Because mm -hmm. if you really dig deep into who influences your audience to take action, there's going to be some online people there. There's going to be some influencers as you think of them, but there's also going to be community leaders. There's also going to be, um, you know, maybe political lobbyists. Maybe there's going to be some social activists. Maybe there's going to be, um, you know, a network of parents or, uh, you know, family and friends that you can tap into. And so, Again, if you take away the barrier of looking at it through the funnel, the tunnel of the Internet and social media, I think you start to find yourself being a lot more successful in finding people who can actually persuade that audience to do what you want them to do. Yeah, I, that, that's a great reminder. Um, you know, too often we have this this prism, this this lens of online only. And, um, you know, like I said, we're, we're getting influence from people every day. We don't even realize it. It could be uh, a neighbor, a friend, somebody we run into at a store. Um, a, a lot of our interactions, believe it or not, are still offline. Uh, and and those uh, the power of those conversations matters. And those people consume their information 
perhaps from vastly different sources than we do. So we've got to take all of that into account. Yeah, you have to look, too, at the, you know, when you look at word-of-mouth marketing statistics, I, I typically lean on Ted Wright at Fizz for my stats on that because his company does a lot of research around it. And I think even with word-of-mouth marketing, which is, you know, slightly different than, than quote-unquote, influencer marketing, but when you're talking about word-of-mouth, they'll tell you that people are influenced, word-of-mouth influences people. About 70% of what happens in the word-of-mouth world um, happens, you know, face-to-face. Um, and only about 10% of it ha- actually happens on the internet. So if influencers are an extension of word of mouth, which I think they are in most people's mentality, you're looking at a very small piece of, of a very large pie. That offline component is a huge piece of it. Mm, absolutely. And speaking of offline, I mean, we kind of go to the, uh, the godfather of influence, Robert Cialdini. Uh, Mm -hmm. He wrote Influence, the Psychology of Persuasion. Gosh, I think it was back in the 1980s, wasn't it? 84, 1984. Um, And and one of the things, one of the takeaways from that book is uh, that it's easy to forget to distinguish between relevant and irrelevant authorities. You know, we, we... we grant people authority simply these days by virtue of their celebrity, and it doesn't necessarily mean they're an expert in that particular field. I mean, <laughs> take Aaron Rodgers getting his medical advice from a podcast host. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> hey, he may be the number one podcast host in the world, but he's probably not qualified to be giving uh, medical advice the same way, say, oh, I don't know, an immunologist might be. Yeah, I would love to be uh, whoever insures Aaron Rodgers, uh, you know, arm and whatnot today because you're, you're about to make a lot more money from that guy. It may not be State Farm. <laughs> that's, good. that's a very good point. Very good point. Yeah, and I, I like I use the example in my book, and, and this is a, 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 a kind of a celebrity example, but I think it, it, it illustrates the relevance of this part of the conversation. I use the example in my book, um, you know, uh, Conor McGregor uh, was signed a few years ago as the official spokesperson for Burger King. Um, and, you know, he's famous. He's got a lot of followers. He's a celebrity. And you could also term, you know, use terminology to describe him as a quote-unquote influencer. But he's not a person with influence because about the only thing he knows about hamburgers is how to make someone's face look like it. <laughs> um, but if, on the other hand, if you were, you know, working um, on – a brand of hamburger seasoning or whatnot, and you partnered with Guy Fieri, now all of a sudden you have someone who is a person with influence because not only do people see him and say he's a celebrity, he's got a lot of followers, he's got a great personality, but he's a chef, he owns a bunch of restaurants, he knows how to make a good hamburger. Right. So there's a big difference in credibility between those two, and I think when you're looking at choosing people who might you might want to partner with for influence marketing campaigns, you have to use that filter of this person may have popularity, but do they actually have influence? Mm. And that's that's the trick to doing, I think, good um, organization and prioritization of who you're going to reach out to. Popularity versus influence. I like that. And 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 obviously with influence comes knowledge, expertise, authority, etc. Um, yeah, I mean, this this is one of the reasons uh, why I turn to you for bourbon recommendations. Not only do you live near or on the bourbon trail, but you've worked for uh, Brown Foreman and other uh, distillers that, uh, you know, you, you've come to understand this this medium. So as much as I like to think you're under the influence, you actually do have <laughs> you, do, you do have influence when it comes to uh, to my bourbon selection. Well, and, and I, I appreciate you giving me that trust and, and I you know, certainly make bourbon recommendations all the time. I don't think of myself as a bourbon expert, but I probably have more expertise than people who don't live in Kentucky and haven't worked on a number of these brands. So, yeah, I've got a little bit of credibility there. I wish the bourbon brands realized that and wanted to just pay me to post about bourbon all day, but that's another story. Well, this episode of Timeless Leadership is brought to you by now. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there eventually. Um, so as long as we're on Cialdini and, and um, the psychology of persuasion, um, there, there were six principles of influence that you ran down in your book. You want to you go through each one of those and, and help us understand why they matter? Yeah, sure. And I'm glad you brought that up because that's uh, you know, one of the 
one of my favorite chapters of the book uh, because I use a uh, a young lady as sort of the prime uh, you know protagonist, if you will, of that chapter in the book. Uh, named Ari, A-R-I-I, on Instagram. She's still there. She's a beauty fashion influencer, if you will. And a few years ago, as a teenager, by the way, uh, she decided she was going to start her own uh, line of clothing and start selling her clothing to her social media followers. Now, in today's uh, you know sort of entrepreneurship first world, we applaud you know teenagers who start their own business who you know, have some sort of entrepreneurial spirit and we celebrate the fact that failure, you know, is okay. That's how you learn and get better. But this young lady, because she was a fashion uh, lifestyle influencer, launched this product and then came on and lamented the fact after it launched that only about 26 items sold during her, you know, launch. And she was really frustrated that her 2 million followers, you know, couldn't support her better than that. And, and she got hammered. Like, this is a 17, 18-year-old girl. She got hammered relentlessly by the BuzzFeeds and the Redditors and whatnot of the world for having this huge influencer marketing fail. We forgot that she was a teenager and she was starting a business, which in any other circumstance would be incredibly impressive. But nonetheless, um, I use her in that situation um, as kind of the – foundation to talk about the six principles of influence that Robert Cialdini spelled out in that, you know, seminal book of, of 1984. And so basically they're reciprocity, scarcity, authority, consistency, liking, and consensus. And I'll, I'll take you through each one of those real, really briefly to kind of explain what they mean. And basically the context that I present them in the book is here are the ways that Ari could have used these six principles to have a much more successful product launch. So reciprocity, that's pretty easy. You give to get. When you go back and look at Ari's content leading up to her product launch, it was her in, you know, nice outfits, nice makeup, cool hairstyles, cool shoes, whatever. But then her copy, her content on Instagram would be like just chilling, emoji, 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 winky face, whatever. So there there was never really – she wasn't really giving anyone anything other than a nice picture, maybe some inspiration, but she wasn't really providing much more context or content in what she was doing. So she wasn't really giving much to the audience. So if she had maybe given more like fashion tips, advice, uh, you know, maybe even links to other products that they could potentially purchase, which falls into another couple of these uh, principles – and then her audience would have felt like, ooh, I get something from interacting with this influencer online other than just seeing her pretty pictures, and that could have helped her. So that's kind of what reciprocity means. Scarcity is also pretty obvious, too. Instead of launching with, hey, I've launched my online apparel brand, go buy my stuff, which is kind of what she did, she could have said, you know what? I'm launching my brand, and I only have 100 of these items for the next two days, the first hundred people will be my true core fans. If you go buy them right now, you're my, you're my peeps. That would have created scarcity and would have made people potentially psychologically motivated to, oh, I've got to be one of the hundred. I got to go get one, right? So that could have helped her as well. Authority kind of goes back to what I was mentioning earlier. If she had provided value to her audience over time of, fashion tips, beauty and makeup tips, things like that to sort of establish the fact that she was authoritative. She had maybe reviewed other people's, uh, you know, fashion designers uh, fall lines and whatnot to establish some degree of credibility and authority in her field that could have elevated her status amongst her audience and made them more willing to buy from her as well. Consistency is, you know, one of those things where it's a little trickier because um, she didn't really have products to sell before then that were hers, but she very well could have for two years leading up to or two months leading up to or whatever time frame leading up to her launch, she could have said, hey, you should go buy these shoes from this store. You should go purchase this over here. Her audience was not conditioned to look at her content thinking that they were going to have opportunities to purchase anything. So the first time she ever said, hey, go buy this, it was her line of clothing that no one had ever seen before. There wasn't any authority or credibility behind it, and she had not created 
a sense of consistency in the type of content she's delivering, therefore elevating their, their expectation that they might find something to purchase on her channel. The fifth one is liking, and that's, you know, pretty simple. You know, you, you, you buy from people you know, like, and trust. And again, I go back to the point where her fans knew who she was because they saw pretty pictures, but she didn't really provide a lot of insight into who she was or her life. She didn't share information about her favorite things or what she likes to do. Um, you might have seen a pet in the shot now and then, but she didn't really talk about it because she really just populated her content with a few words and a few emojis. So if she had like let people like her a little bit more, get to know her on a more personal level, level, you know, pull back the curtain a bit and share a little bit of her life, people would have liked her better, which would have helped her also. And then the last one uh, is consensus. And as much as, as we hate to admit it, I think I wrote in the book, we, we all tend to be lemmings. You know, when we think someone else is buying something, we want to go buy it too. And so if she had reached out to some of her fashion lifestyle influencer friends and said, hey, here's a free outfit for you to wear and talk about and show off uh, the two weeks prior to my product launch, um, that would have created this consensus that, ooh, this is the hot new trend, the hot new shirt, the hot new whatever to buy. And so when she launched it, now all of a sudden people are lathered up and ready to go purchase it. So those six principles, reciprocity, scarcity, authority, consistency, liking, and consensus, obviously that's Robert Cialdini's content. I just kind of used it as a filter to say what could she have done better. And the reason that I wrote that in the book, because the book's not about how to be an influencer. The book's how to, you know, how to manage influence marketing. The reason I wrote that chapter that way and used those examples is so you as a marketer or as a business owner can look at those principles when you're looking at someone's content and say, are they building authority? Have they built consistency over time? Is there consensus that this person, uh, you know, is who they say they are and, and is credible? Um, are they giving to get? Uh, do they understand these principles? Because if you want to partner with someone to move your product, then they better damn well know what they're doing. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's genius. And because those six principles don't just apply to influencer marketing, they apply to uh, all kinds of situations. And, and certainly they, they apply more broadly to leadership. You know, I mean, you could, you could be the CEO of a corporation and you have to still uh, display uh, or exhibit those six principles if you want to uh, exert influence or persuade the people you're trying to persuade, whether they're uh, analysts, investors, employees, customers, etc., yeah, I mean, any salesperson uh, who's ever had any amount of training has probably encountered those in some form or fashion because you got to have them to be able to be a good salesperson. Absolutely. Jason, I want to move from the number six to the number five because uh, <laughs> you you talk about five toods. The, <laughs> the five, I love this, the five key toods of your audience. What's a tood? Dude, well, it's basically just a silly way to, you know, talk about um, uh, words that end in tood. Um, you know, it's 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 not real, uh, real complex. And I'm trying to I'm trying to find my notes on the tood so I don't screw them is, up. Is, is this like tood? Where's my car? <laughs> almost, <laughs> almost. It's uh, it's it's something like. Well, that. I, I have them in front of me. If uh, I'll, I'll give you a chance to uh, to flip through so you can get to the details there. But uh, the the notes I have are amplitude, altitude, attitude, aptitude, and habitude. Yes, did I get those yes. right? Yeah, you did. Those are the five key tudes of your audience. All right. Um, and so you know, bas basically, these five things are. Um, you know, what you're going to want to try to understand uh, about your audience and then potentially about the influencer that you're targeting their audience so that you can prioritize and know that, that the audience that you're trying to reach it, it, through, their, through their audience matches up with the audience you're trying to reach. Right. So you want to make sure if you're we'll, we'll even though this is an audio only experience today, we're going to talk about a Venn diagram. If you're looking at one side of it and you're looking at the, the people that you want to reach and you're looking at the other side of it, you're looking at the influencers audience in question. Those two have to overlap. And the more they overlap, the better off you are. So sort of understanding the five key tudes of your audience, if you will, uh, amplitude, uh, altitude, aptitude, attitude and habitude. You can better understand whether or not your audience matches up with the audience that they have. So amplitude. 
of your audience. So based on what you're trying to do for your business, does your audience need to be big? If you want 50 people, 50 million people to hear your message by Monday, you better buy a Super Bowl ad. You better hope the Super Bowl is Sunday, right? That's the, the quickest, you know, easiest, not the cheapest way to get in front of 50 million people in a short amount of time. So if depending on your goals, is this, is your, is your overall strategy um, scheduled out over a year? Are you looking at a campaign? Are you looking at long-term business objectives? Putting your influence marketing ideas through those filters helps you understand how many people you need to target. And that helps you understand, do I need to put a lot of money behind a celebrity influencer or can I put a little bit of money behind a handful of micro influencers and anywhere in between? So that amplitude of the audience is something you need to understand. The altitude of the audience I use to try to, to, to help you think of in terms of geography. Um, and so uh, we did a, a really interesting um, influencer marketing campaign a couple of years ago uh, in Lexington, Kentucky, with the University of Kentucky Healthcare. And as you might imagine, that is a, a hospital healthcare system that is geographically situated in central Kentucky. An influencer who has 450,000 followers on Instagram does me zero good with that particular influence marketing campaign because probably less than 1% of their audience is going to be in Lexington, Kentucky, right? So you have to think about it. You've got to focus in geographically uh, sometimes on local influencers and not worry about the, you know, the big names that everybody wants wants to partner with because, geographically from an altitude perspective, it doesn't really make any sense. The aptitude of the audience obviously is, is it's less about the intelligence of the audience of the influencer that you're reaching out to or the audience you're trying to reach and more about how complex the idea is that you're sharing with them. Like if you want to, um, I think I write in the book that if you, if you want to help your audience understand water purification, then you need to choose influencers who know how to build educational content to help them understand water purification. You're not going to choose someone like, no offense to her, Ari, who's a fashion style influencer, right? You have to really understand um, what's the complexity of the message you're trying to get across because that's going to help you to determine which influencers are right for, for that particular project. Um, the attitude of the audience really refers to, are you a brand that people really like, or are you a, maybe controversial? Uh, do you have a segment of an audience out there that might hate you and protest you and all that good stuff? Um, and understanding that helps you understand, is the influencer's audience going to be affected by that? Is the influencer going to be affected by, by that? If you're running, and I don't think anybody does, but if there's anybody running uh, influence marketing for Chick-fil-A or Home Depot, there are certain influencers out there, LGBTQ community, they don't want to touch, right? So you need to understand that because those issues, those companies have had issues with those communities and those are not good influencers for them. And then the habitude is really kind of how do people, what's their way of, what are their habits? What do they do every day? Um, it, it's using, you know, a, a play on words, but what channels do they inhabit? If you're if you're trying to reach IT professionals, I think I write about in the book, then you're not going to use fashion and style influencers. You want to try to dial in on people. Maybe they're not in the exact theme, topic, or vertical that you are, are, are selling in, but they at least need to be tangential to that in an interesting way. And an example of that is with some of the bourbon brands I've worked with in the past, we don't just go after cocktail influencers. We don't just go after people who are really enthusiastic about bourbon. We also go after people who are uh, interested in outdoor cooking. Maybe some, in some brands, depending upon their target audience, we're going to try to find influencers who are big into high fashion and style for some of those super premium brands. So you've got to be at least tangential. So you have to understand the habits of your audience, and that then defines their habitude. Makes perfect sense the way you've stated it there. I like that. Well, I appreciate that. Sometimes I'm okay. Uh, like uh, the bourbon industry, I'm decent at distilling things down. Ah, there it is. <laughs> well, well done, sir. I, I, I want to uh, kind of take a little bit of a left turn here and talk about the role of ethics in influence and influence marketing. Um, 
you know, the, the, the intro I played for you had a very Spider-Man theme. And whether you believe it's Stan Lee or one book of the Bible that invented the phrase, with great power comes great responsibility, uh, I think the same goes for influencers. And, and they are or should be bound by uh, the rules of ethics. As a matter of fact, I saw a statistic from a report, I think it was last year, that uh, taking the posts of a thousand Instagram fashion influencers, fourteen percent, only fourteen percent of their posts were compliant with Federal Trade Commission guidelines. Mm-hmm. What, what do you have to say about ethics and influence? Well, obviously, I, I would never advocate uh, for any influencer to, you know, not operate under the relevant legal guidelines and, and compliance issues within your country or, uh, or your industry, et cetera. Um, and I certainly would not encourage any brand to use influencers that violate that because ultimately what the Federal Trade Commission in the United States and similar bodies in the United Kingdom, Australia, and other places, what they've basically said is the influencer, if they violate these policies, they are subject to you know, a fine, but so is the brand. It's the brand's responsibility too. So you have to, as an influencer, if you if that's your role, you have to understand what those uh, you know requirements and guidelines are. You have to disclose, and this is pretty much across the board in every country these days. You have to disclose that what you are communicating is something that you were uh, you know compensated to communicate. So you have to use either hashtag ad or hashtag sponsored. And that's for the Twitter environment, really. But the the requirements, at least for the Federal Trade Commission in the United States, go even further and say it can't be nested or hidden somewhere. You have to be overt in that this is a sponsored post, that you were paid to do this or you were compensated to do this. And I would go further and recommend to influencers and brands out there, even if I have a relationship with an influencer as a brand, I'm going to ask them, hey, for a, and I might even bake it into their contract for a year after our relationship ends. I want you to disclose that you once worked with us because I don't ever want to cross that line where the FTC or any other governing body is going to be suspicious of any sort of activity. I don't want influencers to endorse me that I have compensated without disclosing that because ultimately what you get into is if you go back to the, you know, 1940s and 50s, with radio disc jockeys, if you know anything about the history of communications, you know what the terms payola and plugola are. And back then, you would have record companies that would come in and they would pay disc jockeys money under the table to play the latest record from their artist. And once the federal government figured out that was happening, they they banned it and the FCC put in fines for that. Same thing with, with sponsors. You can't walk into an on-air announcer or – an, an online influencer and hand them money to talk about your product or service without them disclosing that they've been paid. That's why on all the celebrity TV commercials, you always, you know, say that you always have that tagline of, you know, this person was compensated or this is a paid, paid endorser for this product. It has to be disclosed. Right. And really that goes to consumer trust. If you don't do it, ultimately you're going to get caught and your audience is not going to trust you. And if you're a brand engaging an influencer that behaves that way, the audience is probably going to take out a little bit of their ire on you as well. So it's just, you know, muddy water that I wouldn't want to wade in. Yeah, no kidding. Um, and, and, and look, ethics are uh, probably a, an honorable thing that you should practice in all aspects of your life, not just if you're, sure. if you're doing influence marketing. Um, but it, it's certainly something to look for as you, as you uh, assess who you want to work with. Well, I would also, for, for the influencers or aspiring influencers out there too, I would say that, you know, you have uh, the in, entire industry has a big, um, you know, sort of shadow over it right now because of the advent of the tools that allow you to buy fake followers um, and and actually, you know, drive fake comments through comment pods and things like that. Mm. Um, and so basically what those what those do, and you can go find a service right now. If you want 10,000 Instagram followers by next week, you can go purchase that. It, it can be done. It's, it's actually very simple to do and not very expensive. But what you're doing there is you're basically, you know, lying to 
the brands that might be reviewing you as an influencer and lying to potential real followers who might come by to see what your profile looks like. And you're putting on this false premise that you have collected all these real followers and you, you do have 10,000 people or a hundred thousand people or whatever that follow you on that social network. Um, it's been proven. Uh, there's a, a documentary on HBO and HBO max called fake famous. Uh, Nick Bilton, the former uh, New York times technology writer and now with vanity fair produced this documentary where he basically uh, bought about a quarter of a million uh, followers for this one lifestyle influencer and, you know, about 60,000 followers into it. Brands started offering her free products. They started offering her trips. Um, you know, she wound up becoming an actual influencer, even though the film shows that a good, you know, 80% of her audience early on anyway was fake. Huh. So you've got to understand from an ethical standpoint what you're up against. You've got people out there who are unethical, who are trying to astroturf their audiences and fake their way to fame. Um, and some of them are successful with it. Hmm. But if you get caught doing that and all this, all the, all the influencer marketing tools now have, um, you know, a fake follower, um, you know, algorithm that they can run and say, well, this person has a 55% real audience. So if you get caught doing that, that's going to hurt you. So just, again, it's muddy water I wouldn't tread in. There you go. Well, look, if you're going to be having bourbon like you and I like to talk about, you want clean water for that. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, so Jason, when did you first realize that you were influential? <laughs> Uh, sometimes I wonder if I still, if I ever was, um, I, you know, I think the, the first time it really dawned on me, especially within the social media context, um, Todd Earwood is a friend of mine here in Louisville and we were, you know, hanging out trying to figure out the interwebs, you know, a few years ago. And we decided we were going to go to this new conference called blog world. And we, we didn't really know what it was, but we thought we're going to go check it out. And this was 2006 or 2007. It was right after, uh, you know, Twitter had, had launched and become kind of a thing. And we were both relatively new to Twitter. Um, and we're, we both walk in, we go to the registration desk at the convention center there in Las Vegas and we're walking down the hall and like six people, uh, as we walked by, we're like, Hey, you're Jason Falls. Hey, look, it's Jason Falls. Hey, Jason Falls. And I was like, Hey, what's up? How you guys doing? And I had no earthly idea what was going on for a moment. And then Todd turned to me and said, how in the hell do all these people know you? And I said, you know what it is? I use a picture of my face on Twitter. Todd used at the time this like graphic of his initials. So nobody recognized him, but they all recognized me. Well, of course, he changed his uh, Twitter avatar that day. Um, but that was the first moment that I realized, holy crap, like, I don't know any of these people, but they all know me. That has to mean something. And I wasn't really anything at the time. I had a, you know, a meager blog that maybe a couple of dozen people outside of my mother's best friends read. Um, and uh, nobody really knew who I was, but Twitter kind of turned the light on for me. And I realized, wow, what I'm doing on this social network is having at least enough impact on people that they know who I am. Now, if I can use it responsibly and share good content and build credibility for myself, maybe I can do something with this thing. Well, I think you've um, managed here and there. That's <laughs> <laughs> I've done okay. I've done okay. You've worked your way all the way up to the Timeless Leadership Podcast. Congratulations. <laughs> I, I can retire now. <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy. Well, that's, that's interesting because, you know, these, these online relationships that we have in so many ways, um, you know, we, we feel as if, uh, they, they may not matter. They're not real. And when you show up in a, uh, in an IRL situation at an event, mm -hmm. uh, there are people there who maybe you know them, maybe you don't, but there's this, there's this relationship that's been established between the two of you. And, uh, it's what I called, a, talked about this with Ann Handley. It's what I call a pre-union. Yeah. Where you, you've already gotten to know each other online and your first get together is like a reunion, but you've actually never met before. Yeah, that's true. And the first, those, you know, 2006 through probably 2009, every time I went to an event, I went to an event and, you know, met in person, you know, dozens of people that I already knew on, from the online space. And I may have known them in a very superficial way, um, but we got to know each other in a lot more in real life way. 
at those events. And I will say, I, I don't think I attended the first ever, but I do know uh, that I've attended several uh, uh, tweet ups, uh, which I believe, if I'm not mistaken, was a a term coined by one Mr. Scott Monty. <laughs> uh, I'll plead guilty to that. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> there's no patent or trademark that goes along with that, so I lost my, really lost out on my opportunity there. Well, uh, Jason, as, as we're getting toward the top of the hour here, I wanted to talk a little bit about the role of technology. Uh, certainly, there are many more tools at our disposal now with respect to determining who is influential, who is not, um, how we actually share content, etc. Um, and, and you are uh, among the first or the first to have published a research report about online conversations all the way back in 2012. Mm-hmm. So uh, how, do, how do we mix technology with the all-important, uh, the all-important humanity that n- necessarily needs to be mixed into creating these relationships? How, how, do, how, how do the two balance each other out? Yeah, they they certainly need to, and we've entered an interesting um, you know point in history where you know the big selling point of software these days is art, you know artificial intelligence, AI, machine learning. You know, if a software company is promoting themselves in 2021 or 2022 and isn't using AI or machine learning as part of their pitch, they're probably not going to be purchased. Um, and that gets us into a little bit of a danger zone if we're not careful, because if you're relying too much on machines to make your decisions for you, then you are, as you indicated, taking humanity out of the decision-making process. And I'm all for you know uh, computer algorithms being smart and doing good things for us and making good recommendations, but I just want to make sure that we all understand as human beings and as marketers, marketers, we cannot let them make decisions for us. We have to take the recommendation, put it through our own filter to say, does this make sense? What are the risks, et cetera? And then make the decision with that data as a backup for it. And the way that manifests itself in a simple way in the influencer marketing space is when I go into an influencer marketing software and I type in, I'm looking for uh, Instagram influencers and YouTube influencers uh, in the uh, outdoor cooking space. And uh, I need them to be, you know, male and I need their audience to be at least 60% male. And I'm typing in all of these uh, different filters. Ultimately, what these computer algorithms are going to spit back to me is a list of very broad, very general recommendations that have gone through a filter filtration system to give me, instead of 32 million recommendations, maybe 30, uh, 320 recommendations. Mm. But I'm going to have to then filter those 320 down further. Now, I might be able to tweak my filters in the software and get it down to 32 instead of 320. But I still have to go and look at their content. And I still have to look at it from a human being's perspective because – I can, I have seen influencers that have come up as a recommendation for uh, some of our bourbon spirits brands. I'll, I'll use an example. So 1792 Bourbon is a, a, a brand that I used to work with. I don't work with them anymore, but I used to work with them and they're a premium bourbon and they have, you know, kind of this target audience and or, uh, you know, sort of brand persona of being a, for, uh, someone who likes the luxury lifestyle is you know aspirational to high net worth, fine you know high style, etc. And so I would you know back when I was working with them, I would type in all these filters, and a list of influencers, lifestyle influencers would come up, and I would get people who were high fashion, but high fashion in outdoor skateboarding gear, right? And so if I make a machine make the decision for me in that situation to reach out to that influencer or put them on an outreach list. And I haven't gone through and and filtered that with some humanity, some human eyeballs. Then I'm reaching out to an audience. That's not an influencer whose audience is probably not relevant. And there's a good chance that a good portion of that audience is going to be too young for my brand to even talk to. So you have to put that human filter between you and the recommendation uh, that the machine is making. Uh, otherwise, you're going to be, you know, stepping into some pretty hot water if you're not real careful. Yeah. And that's just one example. I mean, there's dozens and dozens of examples of how we cannot let data 
make decisions. We can only let data make recommendations so that we can make the ultimate decisions. Well, if we can move into the automotive space a little bit as an analogy, it's kind of like the difference between GPS and autopilot on, on your Tesla. Um, mm-hmm. GPS has all of the data and, and knows the mapping system very well and can give you directions for where you need to go. Um, autopilot, despite how it's been marketed, <laughs> still can't drive the car for you. Uh, there are still You still need to be behind the wheel. And mm-hmm. you still need to be in control if something should go wrong. And I know this is where ultimately where automakers are moving, so complete automation, but there still is a human element there that's needed. There's still judgment. There are still fine-tuning uh, things that need to be taken into consideration. And, uh, you know, wherever you are uh, along the spectrum of influence, uh, we'll, I think we'll always need that combination of humanity and technology. You know, Scott, why I will never probably in my lifetime get behind the wheel of an autonomous vehicle? It, it, it hit, hit me. Well, not low, literally. But. L- low flying birds of prey. <laughs> it, it, Seriously? It, it, can't, it, it can't account for low flying birds of prey, Scott. That's it. I don't want to kill hawks and eagles. <sighs> You're a humanitarian, Jason <laughs> Falls. What can I say? It's not the same as getting a seagull caught in your engine as you're taking off down the tarmac, but well, know. but they're loud and they stink. Nobody cares about that. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, Jason, this has been a, a really informative and I hope to say influential hour with you. Uh, if folks would like to follow Jason, he is well. Just click on his head there. Jason Falls here on Twitter. You can find his website jasonfalls.com online, and of course, the book is Winfluence reframing influencer marketing to ignite your brand. Jason, any final influential words as you leave us here? Never look up with your mouth open. Smart, smart. Jason, (laughs) thanks for being with us. Thank you, Scott. We all have the power to influence someone. If we remember and employ the six principles of persuasion, the five tudes of our audience, and to always pay attention to our human side, we'll be well on our way. Thank you for joining us and for being an advocate for timeless and principled leadership, whenever and wherever you find it. I'm Scott Monty. Until next time, may you dream more, learn more, do more, and become more. For you are a leader. You are a leader.